Live from our WSBT Radio studios in downtown South Bend. Let's go! Come on! Ah! Welcome to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Wow, don't blink. A lot of major intestinal fortitude going on here. On your home for Notre Dame football. Knocked down by Wooden. The game is over. The Irish has upset Florida State. Notre Dame is number one. And Notre Dame basketball. Number one ranked UCLA Bruins have been upset by the Irish of Notre Dame. Good! Enrique Ogunbowale wins the national championship for Notre Dame. Plus fighting Irish hockey. They score! Jake Evans scores! Notre Dame. 3.7 seconds away from a spot in the national championship game. The NFL and Major League Baseball. Oh my gracious, how about that? Sports Radio 960 WSBT, WSBTradio.com, the free WSBT radio app. Big time budgets. Now here's your host, seven-time Associated Press Broadcasting Award winner. Darren Pritchett. I apologize for the delay, but I had to take care of some personal business before the show began. Just got a notification, a Major League Baseball rainout. So I had to adjust the fantasy baseball lineup. Don't want to forget before the game starts at 7 o'clock. I'm kind of busy between now and then. So Tampa Bay and Kansas City off the board tonight. So no Randy Arozarena for me. But thank goodness for the Cubs. It's another Miles Mastroboni start. (laughs) The bottom three in the Cubs order tonight is Jared Young, Miles Mastroboni, and Tucker Barnhart. They act like they're the Pirates. Not this year's Pirates, the normal Pirates that put together a lineup that's like, ugh, because they have no money. Anyway, eight minutes after five o'clock, welcome to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat on your home of the Fighting Irish Sports Radio 960. WSBT, a live stream available at WSBTradio.com, our free WSBT radio app, and a video feed is coming in strong on the Twitch app. Well, today is the last sports beat for a little bit. I'll be on vacation next week. That one-week vacation just to go before chaos gets underway. Chaos being... The start of Notre Dame football fall camp and the long grind through the Notre Dame football season. It's a grind. It's a fun grind, but it is a grind, especially when you start factoring in. There's some Notre Dame hockey games that will be starting in October. So it's nice to take a little breather before we get started again. We're waiting to find out the official start of Notre Dame fall camp. It's going to be within the next couple of weeks here. It just has to be based on the calendar of the first game. Which is, by the way, 43 days from today, Notre Dame and Navy in Dublin. That is August the 26th, 2.30 Eastern Time kickoff right here on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Speaking of Notre Dame football, 
The Irish will be a part of our hat trick of opening topics in just a couple of moments. Also coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll spend a little time on the Chicago Bears with their training camp starting very, very soon. We have our Twitter question of the day results from yesterday and today's question. And I don't want to give away the voting early on today, but a definitive response from you, the Sportsbeat fan on Twitter, to today's question. We'll reveal it on the air in just a little bit. In the 6 o'clock hour, we're going to spend a little more time on the NL Central. Brian Smith from Bleacher Nation talked about the Chicago Cubs on yesterday's program. Really enjoyed that conversation. And today, we're going to bring on Kyle Reese, who covers the St. Louis Cardinals and their minor league system on Birds on the Black podcast. He's going to join me, as he did last year, when things were going much better than they are this year. An awfully good perspective from Kyle, who does a lot of video work on the Cardinals minor league system, as they are in a spot they have not been in a long time. A, under 500, B, out of the pennant race, and C, in last place in their division. Also in the 6 o'clock hour, our Notre Dame football week in review. And we wrap up the program and the week with a sports wagering segment we call We Going to Sizzler, or in short, Sizzler. All that coming up over the next couple of hours. South Bend Cubs baseball is back tonight. South Bend at Quad Cities where the broadcast booth for the visitors, the windows do not open except for two tiny windows up top. You have to have a long mic cord to get the mic out the window to get any baseball sounds. Otherwise... The windows don't open. I didn't know there'd be a place in the world where a baseball stadium would not have windows that open for a broadcast, but hey, it's an old stadium in Quad Cities, and that's the way it is. It was really, really weird. felt like you were talking in a phone booth. You hear kind of the echo in the room. It was very, very strange, but hopefully it will be an easy broadcast tonight for Max Toma, who's over there in Quad Cities to bring you South Bend Cubs baseball. And they'll get the first pitch right around 7.30 right here on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Hat trick of opening topics. Hat trick means three. Three goals in hockey, three opening topics on Budweiser's weekday sports beat. And we begin with Notre Dame football. And the new quarterback of the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame is the old Wake Forest signal caller, Sam Hartman. He will take over for Drew Pine and Tyler Buckner as the starting quarterback of the Irish, and he will wear the number Pine wore last year, good old number 10. Well, since the Irish are not in a conference, they don't get to have a little media day with all their conference mates like we saw this week in the Big 12. So they go on a media tour themselves. Marcus Freeman was on ESPN and the NFL Network earlier today. Sam Hartman spent a little time on ESPN. And let's play back some of his comments, again, courtesy of ESPN. The new Irish quarterback, Sam Hartman, was asked, after a great, great run at Wake Forest, why did you end up with the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame? Um, I mean, I think... Partially for me, I, I love playing football, and I know that um, going to the NFL is a, is a tough task. 
Um, there's small percentages, and I, I do believe I can play in the NFL, but um, I knew I had an extra year of eligibility, and um, why not try and take a shot at a, at a new place and a new scheme? And um, again, it's Notre Dame. I feel like that kind of answers itself of the history, um, you know, the, the legacy that's been left um, for our team this year to try and fulfill. Um, we're all huge positives in, in my um, thinking about going back to school and then meeting Coach Freeman was a big part of it and what he is and who he is as a man, as a father, and as a coach um, and just wanted to come uh, give it another shot in college, year number six, and uh, try, try and make it happen. Sam Hartman on ESPN talking about arriving at Notre Dame and, of course, once he arrived at Notre Dame, the departure of his new offensive coordinator, Tommy Reese, the system run by Tommy was one that hey, was going to be very beneficial to Sam Hartman, run a pro-style offense, something totally different than he ran at Wake Forest, something that would allow NFL executives to look at Sam in a different way. Again, being in more of a pro-style offense. So, good news for everybody. Sam stuck around. Jared Parker got the job, and it sounds like there's going to be a foundation of what the Irish have done with some things that Jared wants to accomplish running this offense. But it is very safe to say the offense that Sam will run in South Bend hopefully will help the Irish win a lot of games and hopefully will enhance the draft stock of Sam Hartman. I mentioned on yesterday's program, Phil Steele's college football preview. Among draft-eligible players, Phil Steele had Hartman as the 28th best quarterback when it comes to the NFL draft. At best, you're going to be signed as a free agent to be that extra thrower in practice to save the quarterback who starts for the team's arm. Now, it could lead to bigger and better things. I think Tommy Reese got signed by Washington, lasted an hour and a half, and that was it. So he's trying to approve his draft stock. And, hey, let's face it, in this new world of NIL, I'm sure, without knowing, he probably did okay in leaving Wake Forest for Notre Dame. In fact, I would venture to guess the amount of money in his bank account probably is better now than it would have been had he gone to the NFL draft. So hopefully it works out for everybody involved. Good to have Sam Hartman here in South Bend. So how has the transition gone for Sam to this Notre Dame football program? Um, it's been surreal. I mean, I think uh, hearing your name uh, side by side by one of the most historic programs in the country uh, is, is very cool, but also humbling. Um, you know the expectations when it comes to being a Notre Dame football player and also being a Notre Dame quarterback. So uh, a lot of excitement, a lot of nerves, but um, like you can see on the screen, you know, that the, the guys, the 11 guys or the 22 guys on the field are what make it happen. And um, they've been great introducing me to the Notre Dame way. And then obviously Coach Freeman um, showing me the standard of what, what it takes to, you know, get it done. Marcus Freeman getting set for that first game. 43 days from today against the United States Naval Academy over in Dublin, Ireland. When Sam was on ESPN, he was asked if he has ever 
had the opportunity to go to Ireland. I have not. It'll be, I had to get my passport renewed. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be experience for sure. But again, we got a, a tough task on the road, both, both teams being on the road and, um, you know, Navy poses a, a big challenge for us on defense schematically and what they like to do. Um, and again, it's a first game for me um, and a first game for this team in this 2023 season. So um, it's going to be exciting. I know it's sold out already and um, the Irish faithfuls are going to be there in, in numbers. And finally, the new Irish quarterback, Sam Hartman, was asked after this trip to New York, an opportunity to get in front of some of the media on this little Notre Dame football media tour. What does the rest of the summer look like? And summer probably means about two weeks before fall camp gets underway for Sam. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, how much I love football and how much I love the game, as corny as it is, it'll probably just continue on the same path. Um, you know, we're working hard uh, with Coach Bayless in the weight room and um, trying to get as many throwing sessions and whatnot. But I might go fish a little, uh, play a little golf. Not any good golf. I'm, I'm a better fisherman than golfer. Um, but I think those, maybe those two things. But most of it's working out, throwing, um, get around the guys as much as I can. All right, looking forward to seeing number 10 out on the Notre Dame practice field with fall camp getting underway within the next two weeks. And looking forward to that first game against the United States Naval Academy. A lot to learn on offense. New offensive coordinator, new play calling. We'll get a chance to learn some things that particular day against Navy. We get to see Sam play his first real football game for the Irish. How will those two new starting offensive guards do and the chemistry with the offensive line? Who's going to be Audric Estime's Robin? And in the Notre Dame football world, there are normally two Robins to go along with Batman in the backfield. They like to use three running backs. And we'll see which wide receivers step up. Hartman and Thomas had a pretty good feel for each other during the blue goal game. So I would imagine things might work out pretty well. That Jaden Greathouse guy had a pretty good day that day as well. But it'll be interesting to see how he fits into things into this fighting Irish offense. So Sam Hartman visiting the national media, including ESPN. Okay, our second topic involves Notre Dame hockey. This has been on delay for a couple of days. We've ran out of time to get to this, but I want to go over the Notre Dame hockey non-conference schedule, which was released earlier this week by the Fighting Irish Hockey Program. If you are a season ticket holder or if you like to go to a bunch of games, you're going to see a lot of non-conference games. Nine of the ten non-conference games for the Irish will be at the Compton Family Ice Arena, including the season opener. It's a Saturday, Sunday, October 7th and 8th against Clarkson out of the ECAC. They went 16-17-3 last year, a down year for a program that always has a lot of older, more physical players, and always are right around the NCAA tournament bubble or in the field. 22 NCAA tournament appearances for Clarkson, seven Frozen Fours, three trips to the championship game. They're 0-3. They played Notre Dame in the regional semifinals in 2019, and the Irish rallied late. Bobby and Ardella tied it late in regulation. Cam Morrison won it in overtime, 3-2. So the Irish will have a tough early task with Clarkson 
a lot of young pups on this Irish hockey team, a big freshman class with a lot of Grizzly veterans mixed in, but Clarkson not an easy opening two games. The one non-conference game on the road, October 14th at RIT. RIT was excellent last year, 25-13-1, 18-7-1 in Atlantic hockey, but they did not get the automatic berth out of the Atlantic Hockey Conference as they were upset by Holy Cross in the conference semifinals. The Irish going to RIT, they were 15-7-1 and at home last year, and their head coach has done this for a long time. Wayne Wilson, 25 years behind the RIT bench. This is an interesting program. They've been to seven Division Three Frozen Fours, one Division Two, and in 2010, they made it to the D1 Frozen Four. They've made the NCAA tournament three times. One of those, they played their regional at the Compton Family Ice Arena. That was in 2015. They upset number one seed Minnesota State 2-1, lost in the regional final to Omaha 4 to nothing. This is an interesting non-conference series for the Irish. Notre Dame hockey will bring Boston University back to South Bend after being a hockey East foe for a short time. BU back to South Bend October 20th and 21st. Last year, BU was really good. 29-11-0, they beat the Irish up at Aganis. Hockey East, they were 18-6 and and a very good road team, 10-4. BU always has talent. They have one of the best players in the country and Lane Houston, a sophomore defenseman, first-team All-American. Hobie Baker, top-10 finalist, Hockey East Rookie of the Year. The defenseman led all NCAA Blue Liners in goals and points, 15 goals, 33 assists, 48 points in 39 games. He's a second-round pick in the 22 NHL draft by Le Habitant de Marca or the Montreal Canadiens. Defenseman Tom Willander was taken 11th overall this summer by the Vancouver Canucks. Four future BU players taken in this year's draft as well. BU will be a handful here in South Bend. The Notre Dame hockey non-conference schedule also includes 26th and 27th, a Thursday, Friday, with the football team playing on Saturday. It is Mercyhurst, also out of Atlantic hockey. Down year last year for Mercyhurst, 10 23 and 3 on the road they were just 4 13 and 2. They joined Division 1 hockey in the 99-2000 season. Their head coach has been around 35 years, Rick Gotkin. They have never made the Division 1 NCAA tournament. November 24th, one game. It's the Boston College Eagles in South Bend to take on Notre Dame. A rare down year for the Eagles, 14 16 and 6 in Hockey East. They were under 500. 8-11-5 last year right around Thanksgiving time. Notre Dame beat BC in Chestnut Hill 5-2, but they're reloading. Six Eagles drafted recently, three in the first round. Will Smith to the Sharks at number four. Ryan Leonard, number eight to the Capitals. And Gabe Perot to the Rangers at 23. And finally, the other Non-conference series for Notre Dame hockey this year, December 30th and 31st. It's a Saturday-Sunday against the newest team in Division I hockey, the Vikings of Augustana, inaugural team. They will be an independent this year, and they've got players from all over the place coming to play a year with Augustana. So that is the Notre Dame hockey non-conference schedule. The Big Ten schedule has not been released as of yet.
And our third and final hat trick of opening topics for tonight. Just a quick recap. The first half of the Major League Baseball season with all the changes, the pitch clock, bigger bases, no shifts. It has changed a lot of things in the game. How about this? First off, time of game has gone from 3.04 to 2.38, and runs have gone up almost a run to 9.2. Because of all this, attendance is up 8% over last year. There have been four straight weekends of over 1.5 million in attendance, the first time that has happened since 2017. MLB TV is up 9% on minutes watched over last season. Local ratings for the 29 U.S. base teams are up 3% despite a lot of issues with Sinclair and these local networks having a lot of issues. Major League Baseball survey found 80% of people, 18 to 24 and 25 to 34, said they are more likely to watch Major League Baseball now due to the rule changes with similar numbers on them before more likely to attend games and we have some really cool stories going into the second half of the year and a lot of it has to do with teams who have not been in contention for a while in contention the Cincinnati Reds they have not been into the postseason since 2013 they start the second half in first place in the NL Central leading the Milwaukee Brewers and basically it's a two-horse race unless the Cubs get hot and add some pieces You've got the Miami Marlins. They are the number one wild card in the National League right now. They have not made the full season playoffs since 2003. And how about the Arizona Diamondbacks starting the second half tied with the L.A. Dodgers for the top spot in the National League West. In the America League, nobody had the Texas Rangers in first place in the AOS at the All-Star break, but they've got the Astros on the ropes a little bit. And how about the Baltimore Orioles? It seems like they lost 100 games for like 50 years in a row. They have drafted and developed extremely well. And now the Orioles, just a couple of games out of first place in the AL East. They're trying to make the playoffs for the first time since 2016. That's our hat trick of opening topics for tonight. Sam Hartman's media tour, Notre Dame hockey non-conference opponents, and Major League Baseball interest up significantly with the rules changes. And that's our topics for tonight. It is 528 at Sports Radio 960 WSBT. We'll take a timeout, have a little Bears and NFL conversation as we start to wind down on the final sports beat for about a week. As I head to vacation next week, let's get to a little more football talk coming up next as Sportsbeat continues on your home of the Fighting Irish, Sports Radio 960 WSBT. A Michiana tradition continues. Welcome to Budweiser's Weekday Sportsbeat on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. All right, 535 at Sports Radio 960 WSBT Sports Beat 
is brought to you by Budweiser. For 13 years, Folds of Honor and Budweiser have provided life-changing scholarships to military families. Join United Beverage in raising a bud to raise funds for Folds of Honor. By Bethel University Adult and Graduate Studies, visit BethelUniversity.edu slash solidground for details. By the Food Bank of Northern Indiana, hunger is a story we can end. Find out how at FeedIndiana.org. And by Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger. Now with three locations to serve you, Barnaby's, the family inn. Well, a reminder coming up on July the 26th in 12 days, my old co-host Eric Hansen rejoins the program. He's going to co-host with me in the 5 o'clock hour a couple of days every week during the Notre Dame football season and beyond. Looking forward to that. So Wednesday, July the 26th, Eric back in the big chair here in our studios. It'll be his first time in our brand-new studios. So really looking forward to having Eric back on the program. His unbelievable knowledge, Hall of Fame writer. You can check out his work now at InsideIndieSports.com. That's InsideIndieSports.com. That's where you'll find Eric. I think the last time Eric was a co-host, he was still at the South Bend Tribune, but now has moved on. And it's his big venture now as he has brought forth this Inside Indie Sports website on Notre Dame Athletics, thanks to Rivals being a part of that organization. So we'll look forward to having Eric back here on the program in 12 days, starting July 26th, Sportsbeat on 960 AM WSBT. Well, our sister station, almost, well, actually right behind me, the wall behind me in the other room, is Quality Rock 94.3 FM, and that will be the place to find Chicago Bears football once again this year in the South Bend market. From picking up the number one pick in the draft last year, ultimately trading it to Carolina and dropping down to nine and eventually ten before they drafted Darnell Wright out of Tennessee. Bears have nowhere to go but up. A lot of excitement around Justin Fields. I've even noticed on Twitter, could he be an MVP candidate? Can we just pull up on that? Pull the reins a little bit. Hit the brakes. Let's let this poor guy continue to develop. He's an NFL MVP candidate when he runs the football. There aren't too many people as dangerous as Fields when he's got that pigskin in his arm running down the field. Hopefully he does not need to run for 1,000 yards this year. Hopefully the Bears offensive line will be better to give him a chance to go through the progressions and get the ball down the field to a DJ Moore or a Darnell Mooney. Or hopefully this guy gets it going, Chase Claypool, formerly of the Fighting Irish. So a lot of expectations in regard to the Bears. It probably has been a few years since we could say going into a season that the Chicago Bears might be better than the Green Bay Packers, who now have Jordan Love as their starting quarterback after finally trading Aaron Rodgers to the J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. At least for the first time in a while, you can make the argument the Bears might be better. Not saying they are. 
They might be. The Vikings are probably going to take a bit of a step back. They just won every close game last year. That's just not going to happen again. And they have let go some pretty good talent due to salary cap reductions. They should take a step back. Then you got the Lions. All the expectations are now on a franchise that has not dealt well with the few expectations they've had the last few decades. Can they put it together in Detroit? Personally, I hope so. Lions fans have suffered for so long. I really enjoyed Dan Campbell, their head coach, his personality, an old player with the headset on. Looks like he'd want to just chew on a face mask as he's coaching the game for Detroit. They've got a lot of good talent there in Detroit, so maybe this is their year. So it's not like the Bears now starting to come out of their rebuild. Long way to go, but they're starting to come out of that trying to win more games, they at least are not facing a division where you might say there's not much hope. You're going to go 1-5 or 0-6 in the NFC North. I think there is a path where you could go 3-3 in the NFC North this season. But a lot of the Bears' fate, to me, goes into a couple of areas. Number one, can they get after the quarterback. Your safety cannot lead your football team in sacks. The inability to get to the quarterback with your front is unacceptable, especially when you consider the history of the Chicago Bears. When you think of the Bears, you think of defense first. Now, granted, they traded away two of their best defensive players during the season, putting Matt Eberflus, a first-year head coach, in a tough spot, even with his defensive background came to the Bears from the Colts where he was defensive coordinator. You take away two of your big weapons, it makes it very, very difficult. The Bears went after interior defensive linemen trying to build up that area, stop the other team's run game. And you know what? If you can put pressure on the quarterback up the middle, every quarterback cannot stand that. So Bears are doing it a little different. They're starting to build their defensive line from the inside out. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but eventually they're going to have to get some guys coming off the edge that can get to the quarterback. So that is one area to watch closely. And you flip the script to the offensive side of the football. You can have the greatest skill position players, but if you don't have an offensive line, you're wasting the talent. The Bears have accumulated some pretty good talent. Probably eventually... They're going to need to reboost that running back position. Not sure how that's going to pan out. But you got those wide receivers, Moore, Mooney, and Claypool. You got Cole Komet coming back at tight end. They've got some depth now at tight end thanks to free agency. But what is that offensive line going to be able to do? You cannot allow Justin Fields to run for his life again this year. Again, it's exciting when the pocket broke down. Fields scared the daylights out of the opposition when he started to run the football. So that's a great weapon, and you don't want to take that away. But some of those yards you can pick up with Fields throwing the football. So you take a look at the Bears, where they stand right now, going into fall camp at Hallis Hall. You would expect the left side of the offensive line to be Braxton Jones at tackle, and Tevin Jenkins settling in at left guard. You've got Cody Whitehair now at center, and then the right side of the offensive line at guard. You got Nate Davis, and then at tackle, the first round pick out of Tennessee, Darnell 
right. You hope these five can hold up throughout a season. First off, stay healthy. Not sure about the depth of the offensive line. But these guys got to give their third-year quarterback a chance to show what he can do throwing the football. Head coach Matt Eberflus on his offensive line. Yeah, it's uh, just continuity. You know, it's beneficial to, to have that. And uh, it's important that guys work together, you know, so they get the calls down. And certainly you got to have guys that flex inside and out, which, you know, Lucas does that. And, you know, have, we'll have to figure out who was going to be flexing outside for us as we go through this. But uh, um, it's great. You know, it's, it's, it's much better to have continuity on the offensive line. And that's a good thing, knowing those are your five starters that can build some continuity. You heard Eberflus there talk about some backup roles still up for grabs as they're looking for that guy that can be flexible to play the tackle spots and the guard spots. But what about the quarterback, Justin Fields? His thoughts on the guys up front. To me, um, I would say to them, of course, with their communication and stuff like that, um, them knowing each other, them being able to, you know, pass off different stuff like stunts and stuff like that. But um, with me, um, I mean, my main, you know, job back there is just to focus on our protection, getting us in the right um, protection adjustment, um, you know, right play call. So I wouldn't say the particular guys don't matter as much to me, but I think it matters more to them, the way they communicate, you know, pass different stuff, stunts off and stuff like that. So. And you hear the Bears in these two sets of audio sound bites, the fact that they know they're fine, they can build continuity during fall camp. There's not that distraction of, of trying to go through the competition. And I think that's why I've been a little hesitant to be not worried about the Irish offensive line going into the air. Now, if the Irish coaching staff have their starters at the two guard spots ready to go, it feels to me going into fall camp there's still competition, and maybe I'm dead wrong on that. But you hope at the very least very soon in fall camp you get the five together. you got to build that chemistry and the continuity because it's very difficult to build that during the season. That's why I just am a little hesitant until I know who the guards are and how things look to be all in on what that Irish offensive line could do. The Bears feel like they've got five ready to go. And, of course, if the offensive line is okay, then everything refocuses once again on the young quarterback, Justin Fields. And Matt Eberflus has watched this guy from Ohio State continue to develop. Yeah, that's just those, uh, those are tight throws. You know, inside there, the closer you get, the tighter the throws are. So, you know, you got to put them low and away sometimes. Sometimes you got to put them high and outside. You know, so it's really important. The accuracy down there is so important and being on, on the same page with the receivers um, because it's, uh, you know, Bobby and Cole and, you know, Clay and all the big receivers that we have, those guys are very viable targets down there because they're always open because they can use their body to stay open. So um, that's what that's what we need to work on still. Cole had a nice catch. So see, Cole committed a nice catch in the back of the end zone during those drills, too. I mean, we've seen that before, but how important is that to ramp that up even more this year in terms of commit? Yeah, it's, I mean, those are always scoring opportunities, you know. So we always uh, put time and attention to the red zone, you know, more than you would, you know, based on the play number that you get down there. You don't get that many plays down there in a tight red zone area. So, but we do pay a, pay a lot of time and attention to it as we do third downs, you know, third down, fourth downs. Obviously, those are critical downs. And we'll continue to do that, you know, during the course of training camp and as we get to the season. Should have done a better job setting that up. That was Eberflus talking about 
how Justin Fields has worked hard down to the red zone inside the opponent 20-yard line, improve his throwing of the football and decision-making in that particular area. Cole Komet can be a major weapon for the Bears. What a difference the second half of the year was for Cole as he became a major weapon in the Bears' offense. And again, I think he could be terrific for Chicago down in the red zone. But what can D.J. Moore bring to this offense? He came from Carolina to the Bears in that big transaction that sent the number one pick from Chicago to Carolina. This is a player who can catch 90 passes for you. He's done it in the past. Things did not work out ultimately in Carolina. He wanted out of Carolina. He's out of Carolina. He's now a Chicago Bear. And here's Fields describing the last time they were together for OTAs, how there was some pretty good chemistry built right away between himself and the new wide receiver, DJ Moore. At about the speed you expected it to? Um, I mean, it did come uh, quickly. Um, I, I didn't really expect anything because it's different for each each guy, but I feel like with DJ, it's, you know, his body language is pretty easy to read. Um, and really early on, we communicated on, you know, how we want, you know, each route train and stuff like that. And of course, you know, he's a lot of experience. He's been in the league for, you know, a good a good period of time now. So, you know, he's he's played a lot of football, so he knows, you know, um different coverages really well. Um, that's one thing that I was kinda impressed about, like with the offense coming in and just, you know, understanding seeing coverages really well on uh choice drops and stuff like that. So um, you know, he's been great and you know, the the chemistry has definitely picked up. Justin, how, Justin far, how far have you come on your technique, your mechanics, footwork, things like that. If you were to flip on the film from your rookie year and compare it to now, do you see dramatic improvement? I mean, yeah, it's different from my rookie year um, because it was a completely different footwork than now. Um, so this footwork that you know we have now, the first year of me using it was last year. So, I mean, if, yeah, if you're comparing it from now to last year, it's, I would say it's a big difference for sure. All right, that is quarterback Justin Fields. Chicago Bears football once again on Quality Rock 94.3 FM. Looking forward to the start of another NFL season. We've got the Colts on 96.1 the ton. The Bears on Quality Rock 94.3 FM. And NFL primetime action right here on WSBT Radio. Twitter question of the day. Results from yesterday. Today's question. We'll get to all that coming up in a moment. 549 at Sports Radio 960. WSPT, and you know what? Wake up the echoes. Eric Hansen is back. It's a reboot. Here, Hall of Fame Notre Dame sports writer Eric Hansen. Afternoons with Darren Pritchett on Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Read Eric's reports on Notre Dame sports on InsideNDSports.com. From the first snap of summer camp to the last snap of the bowl game, nobody gets you closer to the action. Eric Hansen returns July 26th to Budweiser's weekday sports beat. This is the Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat Twitter question of the day from Sports Radio 960 WSBT. I'm Darren Pritchett. Sports Beat continues 554 at Sports Radio 960 WSBT. We now move along to our Twitter question of the day. You can find a Twitter question from Sports Beat weekdays on my Twitter account at 960 Sports Beat. Yesterday's question, what Bill Steele College Football Preview Magazine ranking of Notre Dame players among the best draft eligible 
surprises you the most? So these are draft-eligible players ranked by position against the best players in the country. So which of these rankings surprised you the most? Number one, quarterback Sam Hartman was ranked 28th among draft-eligible quarterbacks. 28. Choice number two. Rocco Spindler, who has not started a game at Notre Dame and may not start this year, at least at the beginning of the year. Who knows? Maybe he will. But this guy who's never started a game at Notre Dame would be draft eligible after this year. Spindler in the entire country is ranked as the 26th best offensive guard. Does that make your head hurt? I think all three of these actually make your head hurt. And finally, Phil Steele has Audric Estime as the 52nd best draft-eligible running back after this year. Hartman at 28, Spindler 26, Estime 52. Which of those three rankings surprises you the most? A lot of votes going different directions. Third place, 25.3%. Audric Estime, the 52nd ranked best draft eligible running back in the country. Second place of the voting, 33.7% went with the guy that hasn't started a game yet, Rocco Spindler at 26 among draft eligible offensive guards. And finally, winning the vote, your quarterback, Sam Hartman. 41% of you believe. The most surprising of the rankings is the Notre Dame quarterback is ranked 28th among the best draft eligible quarterbacks in this upcoming cycle. I think all three are surprising. You can't go wrong with any of the three. I guess I have to go with Spindler as my final answer because we haven't seen him hardly at all, and yet he's ranked as the 26th best draft eligible offensive guard by Phil Steele. Something doesn't connect. Somewhere along the way. Very interesting. All right, today's question. Dan Patrick had a segment on this right here on WSBT Radio yesterday. It was a poll question, so I stole it. And I think it's worth pursuing. Is Indianapolis Colts retired quarterback Andrew Luck a Pro Football Hall of Famer? Yes or no? Only played 86 NFL games. Yes or no, Andrew Luck, Pro Football Hall of Famer. Vote right now on my Twitter account at 960 Sports Beat. More Sports Beat coming up. Another hour to go here on WSBT. Off on Budweiser's weekday Sports Beat. Don't you guys go anywhere. Plan to put on a hitting display. The center fielder. That boy is good. Number nine. Nine times. Nine times. Nine times. West League champion. Adios! Walk off home run. Eloy Jimenez. Who prefers to cheer for the birds on a bat. Adios! Goodbye, and maybe that's the winner. Here's Darren Pritchett. Gosh, normally this time of the year, I'm starting to figure out what's our magic number for making the playoffs. Well, this is kind of water to the face if you're a Cardinal fan this year with St. Louis in a very unfamiliar place, at least for a while in last place in the National League Central and looking to be sellers at the trade deadline. Darren Pritchett back with you. Second hour, Budweiser's weekday sports beat here on WSBT Radio. It's great to have back on the program Kyle Reese, who covers the Cardinals. Their minor league system does great work on his Twitter account with highlights of all the minor leaguers. And 
You can find them on the Birds on the Black podcast, and I'm just looking for help to get through the summer. So, Kyle, it's your job to make everything better tonight. Can you do that? Boy, I I absolutely (laughs) cannot, but uh, we'll get close, maybe. (laughs) Well, it's good to talk to you, and I really appreciate you doing this. And it takes a while to kind of set this up, but let me just throw this at you. A few years ago, the Cardinals had really no one in the middle of their offensive lineup to do damage, so they traded prospects for Marcelo Zuna and his bad shoulder. That didn't necessarily work out. All the pitchers had become really good at the major league level. So they're kind of in scramble mode, and they fell in love with Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson, so they kind of gave up on Randy Rosarena and Adolis Garcia, who were in the All-Star game. So... This season, has it been building for a while, or do you think, even though those things happen, this is just one of those years where things just fell apart? It's a combination of both to me. You know, uh, I think last year, one of the last things we talked about uh, when I was lucky enough to be on your program, we were expressing some concern with the internal pitching option. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I feel like that's really manifested. That That's part A in all of this, uh, first and foremost. They the Cardinals didn't really do much to address some pitching, pitching issues because they believed in their internal options. And those internal options were probably evaluated a little wrong or given a little too much credit. So they had pitching issues uh, within the organization. And then I think when you get to the outfielders like you're talking about, I definitely think there's some building there. Uh, I definitely think that maybe they've chosen the, some of the wrong guys. Uh, you know, it's so tough when you're talking about the, the major league level coming up with COVID. But I do think that and I'm not trying, I am not trying to give them a way out here. I think that they've had a lot of things that are uncharacteristic of them over the last couple of years happen. You know, I think specifically with all the blown saves mm-hmm. where, you know, like you bring, you bring Ryan Helsley in when it's not a save opportunity and he's lights out and then the first, he gets a save opportunity and he blows it. And the reverse, the same thing happens with uh, Giovanni Gallego. It's, he comes in, he's great comes in for a save, uh, save chance and blows it. Yep. And then you see a lot of the advanced metrics that say the Cardinals, who used to be a top five defensive team, uh, specifically on the offense, are one of the worst teams at converting ground balls into outs, which to me is mind-blowing. So to me, there's a little bit of luck there. But then the opposite of that is they're, they were also one of the worst teams in outfield defense. And they did that to themselves with some of the personnel decisions that they made while, uh, you know, O'Neill and Carlson were hurt in particular, and also why O'Neill was in center field, uh, which, which also kind of hurt them in the long run. So uh, to me, it's a combination of self-inflicted wounds caused by both personnel decisions uh, and in-game decisions, coupled along with maybe some of their, their roster decisions there. Kyle, I'm going to be the first to admit that I was wrong about something. During the time I was broadcasting South Bend Cub games, I called six Bowling Green Hot Rod games featuring Matthew Libertor. And before he was a Cardinal, he was my favorite pitcher that year, had an unbelievable breaking ball, a fastball up in the zone players couldn't hit. At times he would change his delivery and make it really quick and throw people off. I loved him. And when the Cardinals got him, I was celebrating. I thought they did a tremendous job of getting a really good pitcher out of the Tampa Bay system. Well, I was dead wrong because he, up until this moment, has not been able to get it done at the major league level. Now I wish I had Shane McClanahan, but that's a story for a different day. But I'm leading to this. The Cardinals for so long under La Russa and Duncan, Dave Duncan was the master of taking an average pitcher and turning him into a guy that you could count on for six, seven innings 
every night. I think about the year they won the World Series in 06. Jeff Weaver, who was DFA'd by the Angels, came to St. Louis and was absolutely magnificent for them. Do you think St. Louis has just relied too much on a pitching model of contact and not strikeouts? Is that now starting to bite them, and do you think that's something they have to change? Well, I think the very nature of uh, getting contact over striking someone out we know uh, all the data, all the studying shows us that the only sure way to get somebody out is to strike them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you, when, when you start introducing batted ball data in, then you, the luck becomes a little bit more of the outlier. The, the luck changes. Batted ball luck changes. So I think if you're, if you're trying to – if your goal is to get people to make contact, you want them to make soft contact. Uh, and I think where the Cardinals have gotten lost is – it's not even so much that they're allowing contact. It's just there's a lot of hard contact. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think back to those, those days like you're talking about with, with La Russa and Duncan, and I don't really remember it. You know, I was, I was in my teens and, you know, a little earlier, and, like, I don't have as great of a memory about how they changed Luke Weaver, got the most out of Jeff Supon, or, yep. you know, uh, Garrett Stevenson turned him in, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, all, all, like, all those guys. Like, they all had successful since Todd Wellemeyer. You know, they weren't great. Uh, Joel Pinheiro, now I'm just going to keep naming people. But, uh, <laughs> like, they, they weren't great, but the Cardinals got the most out of them. I can't exactly say how that all happened. It did seem like it was an emphasis on keeping the ball down. Yep. But I don't ever remember there being a sufficient amount of hard contact. And when, you're, when your pitchers are allowing hard contact and they aren't working within the zone uh, the way that they need to work within the zone, not just leaving the ball at the middle, then you're inviting this type of luck change. And that's what we've seen out of the Cardinals, uh, especially with the starting pitchers. Now, it's been nice to see the starting pitching turn itself around in the last month, you know, the, uh, last month-ish, you know. Uh, but to me, like, that, that is it. I think if you're, if you're doing everything you can to create contact, instead of striking out, then you are, in, instead of striking out hitters, you are inviting a certain amount of uh, luck. You're hoping for a certain amount of luck. And luck is exactly that. You cannot guarantee that. So I do. I, I think there's an emphasis on, on at least some type of increased stuff, an increased stuff model or a, uh, an emphasis on adding guys who strike people out. And the one thing that probably none of us can figure out and how it factors in, when Mike Schilt was the manager, the defense, the base running improved significantly. And under Ali Marmol, things have tailed off. Is it the player? Is it the emphasis? I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that, but I think that's something at least mentioned, worth mentioning. But let me get back to the pitching for a second. You watch a ton of minor league baseball. Tink Hintz is the guy I think the St. Louis fans are kind of counting on to maybe turn the tide in the rotation in the next year and a half. He's now at double A. But also there's some guys at AAA. Are they more the contact guys, or do you think they are individuals that might be able to help this rotation next year when this new-look Cardinal team takes the field for the first time? I think, uh, I think it's kind of a mixed bag, right? So the, at AAA, the two names that you kind of focus on are Michael McGreevy and Gordon Graceffo. Graceffo has missed a bunch of time this year because of injury. So we're still learning about him. We're learning about the changes he's made. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't exactly great before he went on the I.L., but we're learning about him. Now, he does have the chance to be a strikeout guy, maybe not necessarily uh, an elite strikeout guy, but he has the stuff there. And with a little toying with maybe his mechanics, because there's still word on the street that he tips uh, his fastball slider uh, away from his curve changeup, 
Uh, I, I, I have not seen enough to be able to tell that. But uh, with a little tweak to his fastball, maybe a little tweak to his mechanics, there, there is starting pitcher strikeout sustainability there. And I think at like a 23 to 25 uh, percent rate, which is fine. Like that's, that'll, that'll get the job done. That's kind of what you're looking for, especially with as loud as his stuff can be. Uh, so it's there, but we need to see him get healthy and we need to see him make just a few tweaks. Michael McGreevy, there's no strike out there. That's, his main issue is that he just doesn't strike guys out. So his strikeout percentage at AAA, which being a AAA for where he's at, is still just a little aggressive. So you have to kind of keep that in mind uh, where, he, where he is at in his development. But like that's a sub, I, I want to say it's a sub 18% strikeout rate. Uh, it's definitely a sub 20% strikeout rate. And when you watch him in person or on television, uh, you see that he gets he fools people with his slider. His his sinker slider combo is actually pretty good, and his arm speed and deception that he creates with his arm speed and throwing motion uh, helps both the sinker and the slider play up. But they're still designed for contact. You know, I've been quick to say that he's some combo right now. Uh, this this could all change with a really great off season or with development getting stronger. But right now he's some weird conglomeration in my mind of like Luke Weaver and Dakota Hudson. Mm. You know, I, I don't think. You know, when they, were, when they were just coming up, because Luke Weaver was a command prospect um, that lost command and didn't have a third pitch. But, like, he has the minor league command of Luke Weaver, but he also has, like, the sinker-slider combo of Dakota Hudson. Hmm. Uh, but he doesn't have that, that terrible, terrible command of Dakota Hudson that, you know, uh, that dates back to even when he was having ERA success. Because a lot of his success, getting back to the last point, was based on luck. You know, I, I remember being frustrated with him even when he was good because of how slow he'd work, how long those uh, the counts would be, and how he'd have like two thirty pitch innings sandwiched between two nine pitch innings, getting double plays and getting a lot of luck. So, uh, I guess my point with that is that there's still too much luck in his mm-hmm. game, and he's not he's not it's not manifesting itself in ERA. But when you're when you're striking out guys less than twenty percent of the time, uh, when there's still a substantial amount of hard contact against you, even if it's on the ground. It, what ends up happening is that's the, the clock for disaster kind of speeds up a little bit quicker. Sure. Um, doesn't mean that you'll get there quicker, but it just it speeds up a little quicker. So he needs to work on developing a third pitch, uh, maybe finding something else. But uh, his command is really good. It's just a matter of like him finding a way to strike out more people. And I think that would come with using the curveball a little bit more personally. But right now it's mostly just sinker slider. So, Talking about the St. Louis Cardinals with Kyle Reese on the – he can find him on the Birds on the Black podcast. And I got to say this, it's really funny. I don't know Cardinal fans are frustrated, and I get it. But the same fan who says they should fire John Mosellock, the head of baseball operations – 30 seconds later, I can't wait for the trade deadline because Mo's going to get rid of these players and bring all these players and things are going to get better. Well, I don't know if you can have it both ways. I mean, Mo has struggled in areas that we've talked about, but he's not going anywhere. Two-year extension to wrap up his tenure with the Cardinals. He's going to remain the guy in charge of this organization. And I take a look at online. Yankee fans are convinced they're getting Nolan Arenado for like Jose Trevino, Josh Donaldson, and a Lou Gehrig jersey. But that's not going to mm-hmm. happen. But they are going to make changes. Who do you think on the St. Louis roster has very few days left wearing the birds on the bat, realistically? Yeah, to me, it starts with the guys who are free agents after this year. So that's, I mean, at the top of the list, Montgomery, 
Flaherty and Hicks. Um, you know, I would think that those are the guys that the Cardinals would feel most comfortable moving. Uh, I don't think – I think Montgomery's kind of interesting. I think that they will – I might be in the minority here, but I think they'll hold on to Montgomery if do they too. don't think that they're going to get a good enough – exactly, right? If they don't get a good enough return for what they want for him because he's probably their best trade ship that they might actually trade. You know, I, the, the Nolan Gorman and uh, Brendan Donovan of it all is kind of interesting still. But, like, um, uh, of the guys that they're actually, like, really going to trade, I don't, I don't think they'll trade him unless they get the return that they want because they can offer him the qualifying offer, and that's mm-hmm. a very valuable pick for them. Uh, so th- I, I, I still think it's Flaherty, Montgomery, and Hicks. I think Jordan. I think I think taking Jordan Hicks down to the trade deadline is going to be key for them because I think there's going to be a lot of desperate teams looking for somebody like Jordan Hicks, and I, I can't help but think that they have a chance to maybe do some high. And I love Jordan Hicks. I don't mean this negatively towards sure. him, but like they could do some highway robbery there. They could really put a team over the barrel and, and get the most out of them. But for for me, like those are the three. Uh, that, that come to my mind. You know, I've heard a lot of talk about uh, Ryan Helsley. I, I would not trade Ryan Helsley. I think I think you're better off trading Giovanni Gallegos and figuring it out from there. Um, it doesn't seem like the Cardinals are interested in trading Tommy Edmond or Lars Newbar. Uh, for me personally, I wish they would explore Edmond, and I understand mm-hmm. Newbar. But, uh, all, you know, all that being said, I think, I think it just really boils down to those three. I think that there will be more, but I think when it's all said and done uh, – as we manage our expectations, because I think it's kind of important to manage our expectations mm-hmm. going into the deadline, you, you, you have to look at those those three as their biggest chips that make the most sense for them to move. Final question for you, and it's going to be a two-part question. Number one, if you had your say, where would you put Jordan Walker defensively? Where, where on the field gives him the best chance to succeed? And the second part is, eventually Paul DeYoung's going to be traded or his contract's going to run out and they're going to have a new shortstop. Are you confident Mason Wynn, who's at AAA right now, can be an everyday player? I read some of these so-called experts say he doesn't have enough power. That's going to hurt him at the plate. Your thoughts on those two storylines? Well, I'll start with Mason, if that's okay. I, yeah. think, I think he's still developing his bat, obviously. And but if you're asking me if he's going to be able to handle the rigors of playing shortstop on a daily basis, I have no doubt about that. I, I have absolutely no doubt about that. I think he's going to be impressive. There'll be a few more rough moments early on than people understand right now, but those will go away with time. You know, he, when, he, when he throttles his arm back, he struggles sometimes to throw the ball. Uh, it, so that kind of plays against him sometimes. But other than that, like, he's, he's uh, really close to being a major league-ready shortstop, tailor-made. And, uh, you know, be, because of that, I do think he's probably within a year away from being able to take on that role. I would like for them to be a little bit more conservative, learn from some of their aggressive mistakes in the past and, and try their hardest to create a situation in which um, he can come up and immediately succeed instead of being in a position where he, he has to succeed. Mm -hmm. And then, as far as Jordan Walker goes, I'm I'm on the I'm on the out with this one. I, I'm a little bit different. I personally believe after watching him play left and right, uh, he and look he is he's obviously more comfortable in right. He's he obviously gets better reads in right, but he's still terrible in right field. Yeah. Um, to, you know, I, and I hate to be that way. Yeah. I, I, he, he he has not made progress the way that I thought he would make progress. A year ago, I was the guy who was saying put him in center, like we're seeing bigger and better and more athletic players play uh, out in the outfield and, and play center. Like, let's see, let's just get him out there and see what it looks like. Well, he's not, you know, he's just not, 
athletic. He doesn't have the feel for outfield to play center. And he gets such poor reads in the corners. For me, the right field position is way more important than the left field position. Agreed. And I'm probably wrong about that. And when you talk to me, you know, some players, they tell you it's harder to read the ball in, left, or in right field than it is left. And that's the key sometimes, the way that the ball slices. So I think it's more important for the Cardinals uh, before, you know, for these next couple of weeks uh, to, to have their best defense there. And to me, that puts Jordan Walker out in left. That puts uh, Lars Dupar in right and Dylan Carlson in center. And I like that's, that's the winning success. If those are the three outfielders that you're going to run out there, because that maximizes the potential of the, the outfield to chances that they're getting. Uh, I, I do understand that. Like if, if they want Jordan Walker to be their long-term right fielder, once you get past the trade deadline and once you're into August and you're 15 games out and you want to run him out there and write and just give him the rest of the year to see how he adapts and adjusts to it, I, I'm totally fine with that. But right now, if the Cardinals are still focused on winning and they're still, putting, still focused on putting him in the best chance to help them win, uh, as he starts to adjust to left field, as he starts getting better reads in left field because he hadn't really ever played left field, uh, as he's getting more time, in my opinion, he's made longer or uh, bigger strides in left than he has in right in such a short period of time. Uh, I think left is the best position for him until there's no need to try to win anymore. I'm with you 100%. I agree 100%. And of course, today I look at the lineup. Walker is in right field yeah. and Newt Bar's in left. So, of course, we know what we're talking about. Hey, maybe we're right, Kyle, and they're wrong. That's probably right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, let, let's stick with that. That's a good way to end a, go into a weekend, right? It's, yeah, no, we're right. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, we're absolutely right. I was wrong about Libertor, so I'll eat that. But, hey, I, we're going to be right about everything else, that's for sure. Kyle, thanks for doing this. Really enjoy your work on Twitter and really appreciate you taking some time to talk to the Cardinal fans. There are a bunch here in South Bend as we try to make it through a very awkward summer that we're not used to. And you can catch Kyle on the Birds on the Black podcast. Really appreciate it. And I'll, I'll talk to you on Twitter sometime soon. Darren, it's an absolute pleasure every time, man. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. Kyle Reese joining me here on WSBT Radio 624 at WSBT. Looking to take your business career? Here come the Irish! Notre Dame football coverage continues now. Ball caught, touchdown! What a catch on the three-yard line by Jaden Thomas! Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Caught on the one-yard line and into the end zone. Tobias Merriweather, first catch of his Notre Dame career, goes for a touchdown from 41 yards out. On Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Setting up Estevez over the middle, 25-20. He'll score. 10-5. Touchdown, Notre Dame. Welcome back to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Darren Pritchett with you. We are closing in on the start of Notre Dame football fall camp, but still plenty of storylines to predict, to talk about. And, of course, we did that this week on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Here comes our Notre Dame football week in review, and we start with Notre Dame football recruiting conversation with our expert from Blue and Gold Illustrated. Read his work at blueandgold.com, Mike Singer. Gerby Lambert, an elite offensive tackle out of the Northeast. You have really done a great job of laying out his talents and his interest in Notre Dame. What is the latest on good old Gerby? Yeah, the name that uh, we love, Gerby Lambert. 
Um, yeah, like you mentioned, this is an elite prospect, uh, number 51 overall player per the on three industry ranking, number four offensive tackle in the country. Listed at 6'6", 290 pounds. This is a big boy, um, is Gerby Lambert from a Catholic Memorial in the state of Massachusetts. Here's the latest. He had a rare interview with on three's Chad Simmons, uh, on Monday night, and the article went up Tuesday morning. Blueandgold.com subscribers, you can read the full article yourself, but I'll give you guys definitely one super interesting tidbit. Lambert said that Catholic Memorial is it has a very similar feel to Notre Dame, or I should say Notre Dame is similar feel mm-hmm. to Catholic Memorial for him, right? He also officially visited Ohio State in June, and he mentioned in the article, Ohio State did not feel like Catholic <laughs> Memorial. And I and I think some kids, they want to get away from that, right? It's like, oh, I've been going to Catholic school. Like, I don't want to go there anymore. I get the sense that Lambert was speaking that in a positive thing for Notre Dame and I think a negative thing for Ohio State. You know, this is a kid who hasn't gone out on the road a ton. His four out-of-state – or excuse me, he's he's left the state of Massachusetts twice for college visits, Notre Dame and Boston College – excuse me, Notre Dame and Ohio State official visits. The other two official visits were in state, Boston College and Harvard. I get the sense, Darren, that Notre Dame is at the top, and he even said in the article, another tidbit, Notre Dame is the team to beat, quote-unquote. I think the better question for Lambert is who's number two? I I think it's pretty clear that Notre Dame is the team to beat for Gerby Lambert. Um, and I, I like him to make a decision sometime in the next month. Um, so it, it's looking pretty good for Notre Dame. I mean, it's not done, right? I mean, he could have a, a change of heart and be like, no, I really want to stay home. I'll, I want to go to Boston College or, or Harvard. Can't believe we're talking about Harvard seriously with a you know, five-star caliber recruit. But that's kind of where we're at. Like Notre Dame looks pretty clearly the top school for Gerby Lambert. I think the only thing that pulls him away from that right now is if he has some last minute, yeah, I want to stay close to home. Like that's super important to me. We saw that with Isaiah Canyon, right? Committed to Notre Dame. It was for what, just two months, less than two months. And then he decommits out of nowhere because he wants to stay close to home. And two days later commits to Georgia Tech. Like, that's the only thing I think where he doesn't end up at Notre Dame. But with recruiting Darren, you kind of predict the unpredictable. Um, or I, I, I should say that you, you're nervous about the unpredictable nature of recruiting. But otherwise, I mean, this looks pretty good for Notre Dame. And if, if the Irish are able to land Gerby Lambert, that is huge for the 2024 class. Like, Justin Scott, sure, you would have liked to have him. Elijah Rushing, you know, some of these, you know, top talent. But you get Gerby Lambert, I mean, this 2024 class, you got the quarterback you want to see, Jay Carr, and then you get the, you know, Notre Dame's top, the top offensive tackle target on their board this entire cycle. You get him, I mean, what's there to complain about? And we can almost go a little big picture if Gerby picks Notre Dame. Your guy, Joe Alt's going to go to the draft, more than likely. It would be a shock if he doesn't. Blake Fisher has a decision to make. He's a starting right tackle. If he believes he can be a left tackle at the next level, he might stick around and play left tackle. 
Kirby Lambert's a guy that can play left or right tackle, right? So it gives a lot of versatility to Notre Dame in 2024. Yeah, and we, we've talked about this before, Darren. You don't often, you know, when you're referring to a, uh, a high schooler, be like, yeah, I think he could play or, or, or offensive tackle, sure. right, coming in as a, as a true freshman. You don't often say, oh, I think he could uh, – I think you can play as a true freshman, especially at a place like Notre Dame. But uh, I've said before, and say it again, I, I think Irby Lambert is, is that type of talent. Um, now, I don't think you, you count on him as a true freshman right. starter. It would be a, a definite and added bonus. Um, but uh, this would be – it would be huge for the future. But, it, yeah, like you said, it could also be a big benefit to the 2024 season as well. All right, so that's Mike talking about Gerby Lambert. Let's move along to some top recruits who are going to be coming to South Bend at the end of the month uh, before high school football starts. Great time to get some visits done and give us an idea of some of the great talents that might be coming through South Bend. Yeah, the end of July, um, really since, Freeman got to Notre Dame as defensive coordinator. I'm sure they did something like that before that point. Uh, but it seems like since Freeman got here, this there, there's a date at the end of July where Notre Dame has a big recruiting event. Um, and it's mainly geared towards the next class. So players going into their junior year of high school, there will be some seniors, rising seniors. Like I think there's going to be a few Notre Dame commits. But again, it's really geared because that class is mainly finished. Um, again, they might take four more guys in the 2024 class. Um, so it's big unofficial day. It's July 30th for Notre Dame. And I wanted to share five names for Notre Dame that will be visiting on that day. Jerome Bettis Jr. Again, you can guess who the senior is there. Uh, <laughs> 6'3", 185 pound wide receiver from, from Woodward Academy. Haven't logged the prediction yet. I, I have my own reasons. Um, which I can, you know, share at a later date for why I haven't yet. But Darren, pretty much formality for my my prediction there. I know people are just, you know, at the edge of their seats waiting for Mike Singer to put in predictions. It's the most interesting thing in the world. Um, but seriously, I, I I really like Notre Dame to land Jerome Bettis Jr. It's interesting, Darren. Like Notre Dame is still looking for that third 2024 wide receiver. They're like you can project what they're going to do in 2025. I, I mean. Jerome Bettis, Cooper Perry, Derek Meadows. There's, I think, Notre Dame leads for all three of those guys, and I think they might actually land all three, interestingly enough. I've already logged predictions for Perry and Meadows to end up at Notre Dame. I think Bettis is a uh, fairly safe bet, so that, that could be your three-man receiver class. But then you could also add Talon Taylor uh, from Chicago into that group, the number 58 overall player, number 10 receiver. Maybe Notre Dame takes four in the class. It's, it's pretty early to start talking about you know, projected takes. Uh, but Tom Taylor will be visiting for that July 30th barbecue cookout event. Again, Bettis will as well. Taylor uh, being in, uh, you know, a Chicagoland kid, highly ranked. Notre Dame offered him in March as, as well as, as Bettis. You would love to see Notre Dame land um, this type of talent. Uh, Gabe Kaminsky, another Chicago prospect from Nazareth Academy, uh, a four-star player. Notre Dame in pursuit of him. Um, listed at 6'3", 215, someone who's, you know, I, I think that might be an outdated height weight. Like this kid's getting bigger and bigger. Notre Dame offered him in March, and uh, I think this will be his third or fourth visit to campus. Um, so another Chicago prospect to keep an eye on. 
think we talked last week or the week before, Darren, about Justin Thurman, uh, a, a four-star running back out of Tampa Jesuit. I logged a prediction for him recently. He he tells me that he's planning to be, um, you know, on campus that date. Former high school teammate of Christian Gray, um, you know, when, when Thurman was living in St. Louis before moving to Florida. Also knows freshman running back Jeremiah Love really well. So that St. Louis connection is interesting. Again, he, he's listed as a Florida guy. But this would be a St. Louis pipeline and continuing that for Notre Dame. And, and then uh, actually, sorry, just four, Darren, just just uh, okay. just four of the, the guys that we have a full list going at bloomgold.com. You can check out. All right. Very good. You know, with this pipeline in St. Louis, you got to make a trip and do a little MLS game on the side with the way things are going. Oh, you know, I will. You know, I'm I know you will to do that. Yeah. How, how about a 2024 prediction, Mike? What do you have for us? Okay, so this one's interesting. It is 2024 prediction. It's also kind of 2026. Hmm. So it's for Davis Andrews, who we've talked about, Darren, from American Fork, Utah, three-star across the board. I think this kid's very underrated. I I love this kid's game. So I did log the prediction, and long story short, he is taking a more of a mission trip. He graduates from high school in December, and then he's taking a two-year trip. So he would be, what, 19, 20 years old. And then when he's done with that trip, at that point, he would come back to Notre Dame as a, you know, again, 19 or 20-year-old true freshman. So pretty interesting. Um, like Kahanukia is coming back after doing his two-year mission. And as far as I'm told, he's actually going to return to Notre Dame. It's kind of the downside with this. Like if – or when the kids come back from the mission trip, they're basically a high school recruit again. Like they can go anywhere they want. Um, so that's a little bit of the downside, but the upside being you're getting a, you know, 19 or 20 year old kid with four years of eligibility. Like that's, that's you're, I mean, that's, you're more developed as a human, right? Like yeah. at that age. So um, it's kind of like a, a win-win scenario for another day. Like you really, you know, there's not a whole lot of loss here. So I did log the prediction you know, he wouldn't count towards Notre Dame's 2024 class numbers. He count towards 2026, actually. Um, so, yeah, and I do, from talking to sources, I do gather that Notre Dame is a team to beat here. Um, it's either Notre Dame or, or, or Utah. Um, so, at least from what I gathered. But one ahead long to prediction. It could happen this summer. That verbal commitment might happen into the fall. But I, I think regardless, I think Davis Andrews ends up at Notre Dame. And he's locked in as a safety prospect. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know he's interesting. He's a he's a pretty big kid. I I could see him playing Rover. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, Notre Dame recruiting him as a safety. Once again, that's Blue and Gold Illustrated's Notre Dame football recruiting insider Mike Singer. Read his work at blueandgold.com. Now let's dig into some pre-start of fall camp storylines with the Notre Dame football beat reporter at Blue and Gold Illustrated, Tyler Horka. Everyone agrees that Notre Dame improved the quarterback position as they basically replaced Drew Pine with Sam Hartman. That is a what we think is going to be a major improve. So now take away the quarterback position, the other 21 starters combining offense and defense. When you think about this year's other 21 starters compared to last year's other 21 starters, my listeners were asked to vote on how they would describe the combination or the comparison. Better, close to same, not as good. 
Close to same was the big winner. Not much support for, not as good. I'm just wondering from a general conversational standpoint, when you think about taking away the quarterback position, the 21 starters this year compared to 21 starters last year, do you think that this year's bunch can be just as good or maybe even better? I would have to say that the answer is probably somewhere in between about the same and not as good. I I have a hard time leaning toward even better because, and I know we're probably going to get to some of this later in the conversation, you lose arguably your top players on either side of the ball in Michael Mayer and Isaiah Foskey from last year's roster. You're replacing them with basically guys that were around last year and they were either injured or they just weren't as good as those two guys, obviously. And and some of them didn't even crack the two deep. I mean, you're looking at Jordan Patello. Yeah, I guess he was the backup Viper last year, but it didn't even really feel like there was a backup Viper because Isaiah Foskey did so much for this football team. And then at times it didn't even really feel like there was a second tight end because Michael Mayer did so much for the football team too. So I know that's only two of the 21, but you kind of look at it the rest of the way and, and a lot of the same faces are back. Now you hope that they're improved from one year to the next. Like maybe Joe Waltz is somehow even better. Like maybe he's NFL caliber right now. And some people are like, man, this, this rule of you got to spend three years in college is pretty dumb because Joe Walt could have been playing pro football last year, but that's another conversation. You hope guys improve, you know, Blake Fisher, maybe he looks like he's ready to take the next step. So for it to be, for the answer to be better than last year's 21 players outside of the quarterback, you're going to have to see a lot of improvement from guys that were around. I mean, I've mentioned Jordan Patello. He's got to improve. Who is the number one tight end? Is it Mitchell Evans? Is it Kevin Bauman, Eli Raritan? Uh, one of those guys or, or one of the other three scholarship tight ends. There's going to be a whole have to be a whole lot of improvement. And then uh, on defense especially because you're, you've got the same three graduate student linebackers back. Are they quite literally the same uh can they get better or or are they even going to be a little worse i don't know it's an interesting question i'm glad you posed it i'm glad you gave me the answers because i kind of lean with either about the same or a little worse it's hard for me to say that they're going to be better but the caveat in that is how much better does sam hartman make this team Mm -hmm. because all that automatically can improve the record right there well i love the way you framed your answer I'm with you. I'm in that category of somewhere in between close to the same and not as good. You lost, as you documented, two impact high-end players in Foskey and Mayer that are going to be very difficult to simulate. And I don't think we can forget the Adamiolas played key snaps for this football Mm -hmm. team. So defensive line, safety, and let me know how good the offensive guards are going to be and how that chemistry builds quickly with the O-line. If those things are all okay, then I flip to the better category. But that's a pretty big laundry list. But as I've always talked about, a quarterback like Sam Hartman can cover up a lot of warts on a football team like Brady Quinn did about 20 years ago for this Fighting Irish football team. Two teams that made the BCS that outside of Brady, I'm not sure they were BCS caliber. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and it's twofold too, because you're sitting there and you say, okay, if this was an eight and four roster a year ago, which it was, yes. um, obviously with Drew Pine at quarterback, Maybe it's 10-2 and two with Sam Hartman, but then you get to start thinking about 
man, if only they had this at this position and that at that position, then you're talking 11 and one. Uh, it's very hard for me to go 12 and 0 with this schedule, but 11 and one against this schedule gets you into the college football playoff. So I think there's going to be a lot of people happy with 10 and two, if that's what Sam Hartman can provide for this football team. But once the dust settles, you're also going to have a lot of people thinking, man, holy crap, if there was just a little bit more around him, this team probably goes to the CFP. Hmm. Tyler, let me just go down the road you mentioned. Considering the talent of the players lost and considering his replacement this year, who do you think the Irish will miss more, Isaiah Foskey or Michael Mayer? Uh, Such another really, really good question. But I'm going to have to go with, I know, I, know, I know there were both record setters. I was about to say the record setter. They were both record setter. Isaiah Foskey, yeah. most sacks in program history. Michael Mayer, most everything for a tight end in program history. I'm going to go with that guy right there. And I know Sam Hartman can make up for a lot of that. He's probably going to spread the ball around. But, I mean, I look at these tight ends and I'm like, where is the production? Who, who is it going to come from? You've got two guys coming back from ACL injuries. Mitchell Evans didn't look very healthy in spring ball himself. I mean, he was wearing uh, a brace over his right elbow, I think it was, that, I mean, I, I wouldn't like to try to catch, try catching footballs with that thing on or, you know, blocking some of these guys that are going to be trying to get to Sam Hartman over the course of this season. So I think Jordan Patello, and part of this is I think Jordan Patello can be a pretty good player. Like, I think he can be upward of, a 10 sack guy, maybe even in that like 11 to 12 range, like Isaiah Foskey was, is he going to do everything else as well as Isaiah Foskey? Maybe not. He might not be able to stay on the field for as many snaps as Foskey did and and really grade out well in some of those metrics. But I just look at a tight end who was a Mackey finalist, probably should have won that award. I mean, there were so many people saying he was the best tight end in college football. I don't think there were a lot of people saying Isaiah Foskey was the best rush end in college football. So I look at that and, and I say, man, you lose a guy like Michael Mayer, that's going to be really hard to overcome just because of who he was. And then, like I said, his replacements, there's going to have to be someone to step up. I don't see a Jordan Batello in that group. And I know Jordan Batello has to step up himself, but I kind of feel a little bit more comfortable with Batello starting as opposed to a Mitchell Evans or a Kevin Bauman or one of those two sophomores. Tyler Horka, my guest, the Notre Dame football beat reporter, Blue and Gold Illustrated, blueandgold.com. See, I'm going to dance back to our original conversation and just add on to your comments. When you think about last year's team, and I think there is still an outside chance those starters might be a little bit better overall than this year's starters. Time will tell. But if you put Sam Hartman on last year's team, I think they're sitting there with Alabama trying to see if they could get into the college football playoff. I'll even go so far to say they might have given Ohio State more of a tussle because you're not just sitting Mm -hmm. back playing run, run, pass, punt, and field position against Ohio State. You can attack the Buckeyes with a guy like Sam Hartman. Am I crazy? I would kind of flip – you're not crazy. I would kind of flip that conversation. If Notre Dame comes into the season opener with a gunslinger at quarterback, and, I mean, Marcus Freeman's quotes were out there in public. Ryan Day heard them sure. when Freeman said, yeah, we're going to have to kind of attack this game a little differently. We don't want to get into a shootout with these guys. We want to 
possess the ball, yada, yada, yada. I think Ohio State heard that and kind of adjusted its game plan and said, okay, yeah, we can play ball possession game too. And Ohio State ended up winning the possession time. I think it was like 33 minutes to 27 minutes, which I mean, every time you tack on something beyond the halfway point there, it gets pretty significant. So I'm not sure Notre Dame went to shootout or anything against Ohio State, but I think they could have caught USC at a vulnerable time with the Trojans looking ahead to a rematch against Utah, which they ultimately lost. And I think, I guess Caleb Williams wasn't quite banged up yet in that Notre Dame game. I, I know he was running all over the place, but I don't think he was a hundred percent with the ankle or whatever it was. So I think maybe they would have beaten USC and, and then taking care of uh, Marshall and Stanford, obviously with, with the Ohio state loss there. Notre Dame might have been an 11-1 team with Sam Hartman last year. I, I know I could say pretty dang confidently that they definitely would have been at least 10-2. and two. Yes. I mean, you only need to protect the ball a little bit better and, and score maybe one more touchdown against Marshall, and then you literally only need four more points against Stanford. With Sam Hartman, they're winning those games. And, yeah, I, I don't think you're crazy to say that they would have contended with an Ohio State or a USC or both with a quarterback like Hartman. That's our Notre Dame Football Week in Review, our discussions with Blue and Gold's Mike Singer and Tyler Horka. We have more Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat on the way from your home of the Fighting Irish Sports Radio 960 WSBT.